Hello and welcome to the author interview from The Colonel. In each show, we talk to the writer of one of our features or reports and go behind the story. My name is Stephen Pritchard and joining me now from Mblocks is founder Andrew Budd. Andrew wrote a report on Mobile World Congress and shared his observations on what was hot in the mobile industry. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Overall, firstly, just give me your initial impressions of Mobile World Congress. How many times have you been? This was the 11th time that I've been at Mobile World Congress, um, which is a long, long uh, way. Uh, In the first years, it was always in Cannes. Um, That became untenable when they ended up with 45-minute queues for the toilets. Uh, But this one was uh, undoubtedly the biggest ever. There were, it was just packed. Um, So the the figures say there were 67,000 participants, which is significantly more than they've ever had before. One of the things that didn't change was just the fact that you could walk along the main thoroughfares and sooner or later you'd bump into everybody you'd ever worked with uh, in your entire life. It's actually quite scary, isn't it, to think of how much the industry has changed in those 11 years? In 2000, we were still dreaming about personal communications for all. Surfing the mobile internet was a colossal joke. SMS was still a, a, a gleam in a number of visionaries' eyes. WAP, that was the thing 10 years ago, 11 years ago. It really was. Um, I actually founded Mblocks after going to, not, not Mobile World Congress, but uh, Telecom 99. The entire fair was dedicated to WAP, um, and there wasn't a single person talking about SMS. It was interesting because you could pick up a WAP phone, and within 90 seconds, you knew this was going to fail. But as so often happens in the telecoms industry, uh, people's excitement about the technology and the momentum of a, of a new idea blinded people to common sense. Very much so. I remember testing out some websites that had been developed at great expense by banks, among other people, for one of the early Nokia WAP handsets. And you had to use a scroll wheel in the middle of the handset and then push the scroll wheel in to select a menu item. And nobody who tried this found it at all intuitive. So things have moved on incredibly. In terms of what you've seen, though, in terms of the things that stood out for you, and clearly you go into more depth in that in the article... Were there any things that you were taken aback by and said, well, actually, either this is something that has been going on for 10 years and why is it still here? Or on the other hand, anything that you would say, goodness me, that actually does have potential. That could work. The thing that that, that continues to um, astound me is the continuing vitality of, of SMS. Obviously not in the in the conference, not even on the stands, but talking to a lot of people, both from operators and a lot of the the brands who are there, people are still actually very excited about the potential for SMS as a, as a means for communicating, not so much between, between people, but between uh, companies and people. There was a lot of angst at Mobile Congress about what the what so-called over-the-top messaging providers, people like WhatsApp, are doing to the person-to-person messaging business as far as the operators are concerned. But that's not having any impact at all on the use of SMS by companies as a, as a, a marketing and service communications tool. And I was quite surprised by the level of enthusiasm that I encountered in conversations with people who kind of went, yeah, apps are exciting and this mobile internet stuff is exciting and HTML5 is exciting. But you know what? It's, today, it's still all about SMS. So I think the, the, the durability of, of that, in, in 2000, I thought we were almost too late. And here we are in 2012 with a lot of runway ahead of us. 
And we're only scratching the surface of the capabilities of machine-to-machine communications as well. And that could be a market which is as big as person-to-person communications, potentially, if not bigger. Uh, One of the speakers talked about potential in the next 10 years of 50 billion machine-to-machine devices. There is no doubt that in areas like mHealth and smart grid um, and automotive applications, uh, machine-to-machine is going to be enormous. But sometimes when I hear this hype, I'm just reminded of the uh, of the of people mistaking um, optimism for uh, realism all those years ago. This time, I think that it's going to be real. And of course, SMS is a big part of that because most of the information that goes between machines at the moment doesn't need to be very complicated. It, it's status information. I'm working or I'm not working. I need a repair. I don't need a repair. That's absolutely true, and its its use over the over the many years has has increased. I think what we will see, though, is that as data coverage gets more ubiquitous, as the cost of uh, data enabled modems um, heads towards vanishing point, there were there were sensors, an increasing number of sensors, particularly mobile health sensors, things to plug into to attach to or plug into to smartphones that would gather more and more information about about you, about your status, as well as about your surroundings. I can see a day one, I can see a world in which in the future, the cloud will have a, a more and more accurate um, model uh, of you and of your environment, um, which it can analyze to uh, foresee, predict, and address potential issues. And that, that was quite exciting. The, the other thing I have to say that blew the minds of everybody at Mobile Congress was this extraordinary uh, camera phone that Nokia launched. People, that was, the, that was one of the few things that everybody I met was talking about, the PureView, uh, the Nokia PureView 808. Um, this was a phone with 41 megapixels. As, a, as, a, as an industry friend of mine said, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what kind of wimp only has 40 megapixels? And there was a good deal of derision about why such a thing could possibly be useful. Um, I'm quite intrigued by it because the real reason I think is that it enables uh, a good deal of, of uh, I think, of basic of digital zooming. Without uh, to, a, to you can imagine a five or an eight times digital zoom on that without any picture degradation, thereby making the phone uh, simpler, cheaper, and more robust. And that's I think a very interesting idea. It's not immediately clear what the business applications of something like that would be. Do you think it will sell? Well, it's only a prototype at the moment. They weren't actually launching it onto the market. They were they were emphasising that this was a this was a prototype. Um, uh, I, I think unless they unless they do what you've just said, which is to explain how you use these pixels in a way that makes sense to the common man, then no, of course it won't. But if they use it, if if they can show how this is advantageous to the average consumer, then I think this could be a this could be a surprise. And it's also one of those examples of what European engineering can do when it's given the chance. Nokia have always been very strong in, in optics, and they were, you know, they have used uh, Carl Zeiss lenses for a long time. I don't know where the image sensor comes from. Well, we'll see how that works out and whether that indeed does make it into a production phone. It would be nice to see it on the market. I think it would be, it would be an interesting product to see on the market if indeed that happens. The other thing, though, that stood out from your article was near-field communication and mobile payments. And that's, again, one of these things that, you know, having been to Mobile World Congress a few times myself over the years, I've always seen lots of demos of this, lots of demos in the manufacturer's labs, but very little evidence of real traction in the marketplace, volume deployment of handsets and banks and retailers coming on board with NFC and mobile NFC in particular. Do you think that's going to change now? Do you think that that is making a shift which will actually bring this to the mainstream? 
this is very tricky. In, in some ways, it reminds me of WAP. I mean, there was no doubt that there were, there were a lot of announcements this year about NFC at, uh, at Mobile Congress. There were quite a number of phones launched. Um, Panasonic launched a phone. Sony Ericsson launched phones. Uh, BlackBerry were showing off NFC-enabled phones. So on the one hand, it's quite clear that the phone manufacturers are heading to, are heading into the market um, with NFC enabled phones, that's going to happen. Uh, there were also quite a number of announcements. Vodafone, for example, announced uh, a relationship with Visa for NFC wallets. So there's lots of movement and lots of excitement. I still have issues about whether this isn't, the enthusiasm for this isn't a little bit misplaced, um, as I've had occasion to say a number of times. Giving people the opportunity to tap for something instead of paying for it is not going to increase retail sales in the Western world. It, it, it can have a dramatic effect, obviously, in the developing world. In the developing world, this could be a dramatic change, but I think it'll be a bit longer before we see NFC-enabled phones in the developing world. It may be that in the United States, where uh, chip and pin doesn't exist, this is actually a natural evolution towards a more secure customer-present experience. I wouldn't exclude that. But I can't see it being a particularly big deal in Europe as a mobile payments me mechanism. At the same time, I do think that one of the side effects of the introduction of NFC-enabled phones will be that inside that phone is a thing called a secure element, a kind of a, a bomb shelter with a computer running inside it, which no one else can get at. To me, that's actually more significant than the touch-to-pay aspect of NFC, because when you can put a trust, when there is a trusted element on the phone, then you enter a whole new realm of, of, of mobile security, and you can start to do things with a mobile phone that have, that have never been possible before and have never been possible on a desktop either. As I say, I think that there's more to NFC than payments, and I think it'll take a lot longer for the physical touch stuff to, to get much traction. But I think the advent of the secure elements part of NFC will change the market. So the secure access token, the secure ID token, potentially passports, driving licenses. In your article, you mentioned the connected house, and this is something that a lot of people would say, hang on, connected homes, mobile, what do they have to do with each other? Surely the mobile device is for being out and about. Well, of course it is, but increasingly we're seeing people consume media in the home on a mobile device. We're seeing them use 3G networks at home on the mobile device rather than, say, Wi-Fi, which is causing the operators a great deal of pain in terms of capacity. And people are starting to use this as the fourth screen. They're using it for entertainment, for music. You mentioned music as well in your piece, for watching video, for watching live television potentially. Tying all that together and using it, the phone as the source of intelligence, the nerve center for the connected home does actually make sense when you think about it in the context of how people are using mobile phones, smartphones in particular, and tablets already. For a long time in the mobile content and commerce industry, we were slightly patronizingly told that sooner or later we'd kind of get the internet and that mobile would become uh, a colony of the wider internet. Um, the implication being that the mobile industry would align itself with the fixed with the fixed uh, PC based internet industry and would become the fourth screen. I, I've felt for a number of years that that was um, completely wrong and that what actually what would actually happen is that the mobile would become the first screen and that the ecosystem the emerging mobile ecosystem would actually come to act as a model for everything else. And I think we're seeing that happening now quite quickly. Um, PC sales are flat. Um, smartphone and tablet sales are, are burgeoning. Um, and I think it's quite clear that, that, the, that the mobile connected device will quite quickly now become the, the first screen. Well, um, if it is your first screen, then the kinds of things that you do will be doing to manage your life will be done through that mobile connected device. And one of the things that I have absolutely no doubt will happen 
um, will be the intelligent monitoring and automatic management, but also the um, uh, simple but sophisticated control over your living over your living environment um, uh, through the cloud, through equipment which is put into your house to monitor um, to monitor electricity, to monitor heat, uh, heating and hot water, to monitor the environment, the temperature, temperature inside, temperature outside, all that kind of good stuff, to ensure that your comfort is maximised while uh, your 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 the costs of energy and your impact on the environment are, are diminished. That's going to be done through the cloud, but the way that you're going to visual, you're going to see that and control it um, will be through your mobile connected device. Frankly, whether you're out of the house or or, or in it, as you say, um, the majority of, of media consumption on mobile connected devices is actually at home, and quite a lot of it is in bed. Um, so I think it was relevant that the mobile connect that, that the connected house was there at mobile congress. I was just flabbergasted. I mean, really flabbergasted that there was nothing about. Um, there was nothing significant about about intelligent energy and, and smart home management in that house. I think it's still early days for that part of the industry. We've seen some success and popularity for fairly simplistic management applications. There are some that have been set up for home control systems on the iPad and the iPhone in particular. The Sonos application for the iPhone Apparently, that has a very high download rate among Sonos users. So where companies are seeing a synergy between their existing customer base and high-end mobile users, high-end smartphone owners, iPhone owners, they're doing very well. The other element, though, to touch on that in terms of the fourth screen or the first screen is discovery. A lot of people, if you look at the way people behave with mobiles and you look at all, any of the data that's come out of evaluative or social observation research, People are looking for the content on their mobile device. They're using the search functions on the mobile device. They're using the browser on the mobile device. And then at some point, they might say, actually, that content doesn't lend itself to this size screen. I'm going to open up a laptop or switch on the television. What the industry could do, and what some analysts have said they have failed to do well enough as yet and missing an opportunity here, is to make that process much more seamless. So you find the content on your mobile device, you then tap a screen and it comes up on the television. I think that's the simplicity that people want and that will in turn make mobile downloads of music, mobile downloads of video and accessing the stores for those things, the e-commerce elements of those things, which again you've alluded to in your article, that much more successful. One of the industry initiatives which people haven't been talking a great deal about is something called the Ultraviolet Initiative. And Ultraviolet is, is, has been put together by the studios as a kind of a successor to Blu-ray. And their idea is exactly what, what you just described. That is that you can buy the right to look at a film or a TV program anywhere, in, including and probably, in my view, especially on your mobile phone. And now you've got that right in your locker and you can download that, that piece of content um, to anything that you possess. You can download it to your mobile phone, but you can also download it to your set-top box. Because um, I, I think that that is um, 100% correct. The buzzword now is actually no longer mobile marketing or mobile commerce. It's about mobile engagement. And this, we, we, we visualize a cycle of mobile engagement, which begins with the relationship. That is how you feel about the brand that you, you deal with, whether you like it, whether you trust it. Then discovery, exactly as you've described. Then the moment of, of decision when you decide to buy something and you, you, you select it and, and purchase it, followed by payment. Uh, followed by fulfillment, in other words, delivery, followed by in-life service. So you've got those six phases of real-time engagement. And the interesting thing is that, as you say, you can hop on and off different platforms. I think you're completely correct that, that increasingly the, the mobile connected device will be a very powerful device for discovery. 
And I thought for a little while that actually the most powerful force in discovery is not going to be search. The world is not going to be got dominated by Google, but it will be either direct social recommendation or uh, mining of your social activities in such a way as to be able to uh, suggest things to you. The alternative to discovery with content is sharing. Now, you mentioned the word sharing in front of people from the film studios or the record companies, and they immediately think piracy. But that's not necessarily the case. People want to use channels such as Facebook or Google Plus or Twitter to share the content that they like without necessarily moving the copyright files from A to B. And person to person. A few years ago, Qualcomm demonstrated some interesting technology in their labs, which would allow the consumer to use their mobile phone as an authentication token that meant that if you walk into someone else's lounge and you want to watch a Sunday's episode of Homeland, for example, and you have downloaded that and paid to download that from whichever service you use, Netflix, doesn't matter which one, pick your own, but you've downloaded that from iTunes, you've downloaded that from Netflix... Your friend doesn't have to have that service installed. Your friend doesn't have to have that media or having paid for it because you have the right to unlock that media file using the token that's inside your mobile device that you carry about with you. And that allies to what you were describing around the secure element of NFC within the phone. It could be that rights management tool that the industry's been looking for for a long time. That would be the missing element in the connected home for a lot of people. That's actually what I think what ultraviolet is trying to do. What ultraviolet is doing is giving you a key and then you can use that key to... Uh, unlock content which is actually stored in the cloud and which enables you to download it to to any device including um, a device in, in a house which you you visit that's a that's a, a cloud-based solution what you've just described based on secure element would be a handset based solution and this is a kind of a theme that we see running through a lot of the debates are rights aspects of trust the ability to pay the ability to identify are those things that are going to be on the handset or are they going to be in the cloud and I think that that's actually one of the questions about NFC. Are we going to see these complex NFC-based phones with their processors and the secure elements on them? Or are instead we going to see NFC happen by means of dumb stickers just pasted onto the back of the phone or stuck into the back cover or whatever? And when you touch that sticker to the NFC reader, the reader basically talks to the cloud and all, and all the things that it needs to know about from you are actually um, in, are stored in the cloud. You may not need to store things uh, things like uh, content rights or uh, payment cards on your phone. These things may be stored in the cloud, and then you uh, merely need to identify yourself to access them. So what we're talking about is using the business know-how and the engineering expertise behind the scenes, under the hood, to make the consumer product as simple as possible and therefore to drive growth in the mobile industry. Andrew Budd from Mblocks, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to the Colonel today. For more content from The Colonel, do be sure to visit our website, www.colonelmag.com, follow us on Twitter, at Colonel Mag, and sign up to our newsletter, The Nutshell. But for now, thank you for listening. <laughs>